All right, let me just uh, remind you of some things that are coming up, and then we'll get into page 22, lesson 6, final one in our series on stolen identity. Next Sunday, uh, during the 9.30 hour, the entire hour, worship hour, will be devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. So periodically throughout the year, we have communion, the Lord's table, and we devote the entire worship service to that. Well, that will be next week. So when you come in at 9.30, that's what, uh, that's what we'll be doing. So next week is uh, communion. And then uh, two weeks from today, we, during this hour, will have uh, three classes going, adult classes going on. One will be the newcomer's orientation, and that is for those who are, have been guests at our church for a while, you're trying to find a church, and you'd like to know more about us. We provide this periodically throughout the year for that purpose, to tell folks more about our church, what we believe, how we started, what we hope to do in the future, why we do things the way we do. It's in an intimate and uh, informal setting, so you can ask any questions that you've been uh, looking to ask or that have occurred to you in your time uh, visiting with us. Uh, I lead that. It'll go for four weeks. We have a booklet of materials, about 60 pages, that we go through during those four weeks. So it does, by the time you're finished with those four weeks, you have a good idea of who we are and where we came from and what we believe. And it'll assist you then in making a decision about whether this is the place that God would have you to join and serve. We always say that there is no obligation and no pressure put on you after the end of that four weeks. So uh, just take my word for it. We make good on that. We don't chase you down. We don't say, what do you want to do, any of that. Uh, There are folks uh, here who have taken that and are praying about and trying to decide what the Lord would have them to do. They could vouch that we we don't hassle them about that. But you need that information to make an intelligent decision. And so I urge you, uh, if you're not a member of our church, you're not a member of any other church, you've been a guest here for a while, that you take that to see if this is the place that the Lord would have you align. That will be two weeks from today during this hour, our newcomer's orientation. At the same time, uh, simultaneous with that, Pastor Matt will be leading four weeks in our new members class, and that's for folks who have joined the church since the last new members class. So we offer it at the same time as newcomers, and so it's been several months. We've had folks join, those of you who have joined since the last new members class, newcomers, new members, four-week period. You'll want to take the new members class, and that helps get you assimilated into the life of the church, Uh, and uh, Pastor Matt leads that. We have some key leaders from our church uh, do some presentations there about various areas of our ministry. So it's very informative, very helpful, very much encouraged for those who have joined the church recently. Newcomers, new members, two weeks from today. Now, for the rest of you, you'll be in this room, and uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, our guys teach two of those four weeks. Uh, Brother Ron Biggs is going to teach one of those weeks. Uh, Zach Hamilton is going to teach one of those four weeks. And then Pastor Matt, when other leaders from other areas of the ministry are doing the new members class, he'll be here uh, leading two of those four weeks. So in, uh, we'll have three different guys during those four weeks. And then uh, when I finish the newcomers orientation, we'll come back and all be together. Okay? So two weeks from today, and then for four weeks, that's what, uh, what will be going on. Encourage you to take a look at your program and just uh, mark the stuff that's listed there. We've got our uh, Memorial Day picnic coming up on the 27th at Lake Erie Metro Park. So be aware of that. Make plans to be with us. We always have a good time. There's several other things listed in there as well. All right, page 22, lesson number six. 
We've been in this series now for five weeks, Stolen Identity, Who Does God Say I Really Am? And if you've been with us, you know that this series is about trying to determine what God says about us versus what uh, the secular world says about our identity and how we should try to pursue a favorable view of self, a favorable identity. And we are told by secular psychology that you can't have a favorable view of yourself. You can't be self-actualized, is the fancy term, uh, as we saw in Lesson 1, unless there are a certain hierarchy of needs that are met. And if those needs are not met, then you're not going to be all that, that you can and should, should be. So we, we've seen that. We've sought to refute that. But we don't want to just refute. We want to see what the Bible has to say about how we should view ourselves and how we should develop our image of ourselves. And so we have uh, tried to point to the importance of understanding who we are in Christ and then understanding who we are in Christ, living out the implications of that. So, for instance, in my relationships with other people, I no longer have to feel like I have to live up to their expectations because in Christ, He has met God's expectations for me. And therefore, because I'm attached to Him, that's the good news. I have a vital relationship to Him. Because my life is hid with God in Christ, because of my union with Him, God sees me as He sees Jesus. And so I have the perfection of Jesus from the standpoint of God. And so even though I mess up, and I do, even though I sin, and I do, God sees me through the perfection of Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But that has profound effects then on how I interact, how I go about my relationships. So the identity of a Christian found in his or her understanding of the gospel should have profound effects and profound positive effects on how we see ourselves in relation to other people. I don't have to perform. I don't have to seek the approval. In short, I don't have to live in what the Bible calls the fear of man, revering man and man's opinion about me because in the gospel I have God's opinion about me. So that's what we've sought to do. And now we come to this last lesson, help for hurting people, putting it all together. As folks are hurting because they have been misled, because they have bought into false ideas, how is it that we then can take the material that we've gone through in these five lessons and be of help to others? And that's what this final session then is about. Top of page 22, in our previous discussion of the biblical view of self, we found the Bible teaches that we're to think of ourselves less. Our goal is to lose ourselves in service to others. This week we're going to learn how to apply all the information in this series in helping other people or perhaps ourselves in recovering from self-esteem problems and adjusting their self-esteem to what the Bible recommends. So how can you be an instrument of help in the lives of others? Well, first, we say on page 22, is to emphasize the biblical teaching on self-image. And the first item of teaching in Scripture about self-image is that our most basic self-esteem problem is an overemphasis on self. So Jesus says in John 12, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And we have a note in the middle of the page, self-centeredness is not the same thing as an inflated view of self. 
Now notice this carefully. Even people who have an extremely low view of themselves fall victim to self-centeredness. They think about themselves too much. They overemphasize self. Even though their thoughts of self may be poor. Negative behavior patterns like suicide attempts, criminal activities, and so-called acting out in various ways are often just strategies for gaining more personal attention. And so as you try to help somebody, take with you that insight. You may be talking to someone, this may be you, it may be someone in your family, another brother or sister in the church, and they are really down on themselves and they talk about themselves in very negative terms. They may have picked that up from their environment. They may have grown up in a home where they were belittled a lot. We've got a point about that as well. But they've acquired that somewhere, and they use that language to describe themselves. So even though they, they speak poorly about themselves, and even though uh, they don't have an inflated view of themselves, quite the contrary, they have a deflated view of themselves, they can still be very self-centered because all of your conversation, all of their thoughts, and all of their conversation is about whom? It's about, it's about them. And so one of the things you can help them to see is that they don't need to think of themselves less. They already do think low of themselves. But as I said last week, they need to, to think less about themselves, or not rather than less of themselves. So the solution in the middle of the page to the problem of self-centeredness is to be directed outward away from habitual thoughts about self and to focus on helping others. And so I have found that in counseling folks who are in this situation, that encouraging them to use their gifts and abilities uh, for the benefit of other people is one of the most therapeutic things you can do for them, is that they now are suddenly invested in other people and not constantly focused on, on themselves. And then secondly, Jesus taught that self-denial is the only path to ultimate satisfaction. Luke 9, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Why is this important to remember when helping people with self-esteem problems? Well, it's obviously a contradiction to the way we naturally think. Jesus says that the person who focuses all his attention on himself loses all he wants to preserve for himself, whereas the person who puts Christ first gains all that the other loses. Those who expend themselves for others and for Christ find that they protect, preserve, honor, and save themselves in the process. What people seek by self-centeredness, they gain through self-denial. Now, why is that? It's a mouthful. It's one of those things that sounds very churchy. You know, you lose your life, you'll gain it. Jesus said that. But then we walk away and go, I'm sure that's right. I just have no idea what that means. So practically, what does that mean? Why is that true? Well, think of it this way. With a person who engages in uh, self-denial, and you couple that with the person who, in the good news of the gospel, has a secure position before God because of what Christ has done. Think about how that person pursues relationships now. Relationships are no longer tools. 
For the person who loses his life, he gains it because relationships are now no longer tools or stepping stones or vehicles for me to get something because I already have everything in Jesus. And that makes then a profound difference in how I interact. People then are not, they're not tools, they're not vehicles to something, they are not the means to my gaining a good self-image. So now that I am forgetting about myself, now that I'm able to deny myself, I can actually interact with people on a much a radically different basis. They're not tools, they're not vehicles, they're not the means to my gaining a good self-image. I'm no longer in the trap of comparing myself to people as a means of value for myself. So I'm no longer thinking about them and how I, how I, how I measure up or don't measure up. And in the old way of thinking, as I was looking at people as the means by which I gain my own value, you know, if I don't measure up, then I, I devalue myself and I'm on the, the roller coaster when I do something good and it's a horrible way to live. Instead, now, with the I lose my life for the sake of Christ, I'm leaving it on, the, to use the athletic analogy, I'm leaving it on the field for Jesus, you know, or leaving it on the court. I'm just, I'm just throwing my life into Christ and His priorities and into other people. Now hear this, now I'm free to enjoy other people and the situations in which I encounter them without competition. I'm now free to enjoy people just for who they are and just for what they are. They're not a means. They're not a vehicle. They're not a tool. It is not through them that I, I have to gain anything. And now I can... So, you know, if that's the case, some of us, if we're so immersed in this secular, fleshly way of thinking, we might think, well, then what do I need relationships for? <laughs> if they're not for me getting stuff... But now I can freely give stuff. I can freely give to those people and enjoy them and get to know them, not be constantly thinking about how do I compare to them? How much better they are than me? Or how much worse they are than me? So that I think uh, ill of them. I'm free to enjoy the person and I say, and the situation. You know, every relationship has a context to it, right? A situation. So it's a marriage relationship, it's a work relationship, it's somebody that I've just encountered, the situations are myriad, but I am free to just enjoy the individual, enjoy the situation without competition, without jealousy, and without codependency. You know, I'm not dependent on this person for my well-being. And whatever this person does or fails to do, I will still be okay. If, if I love them, then I, will, then I will be affected. There's no doubt about that. I'll be affected by what they're doing or failing to do. If they're not doing what they ought, if they're doing what they ought not, then I will be affected by that because I love them and I want the best for them. But I will still be okay. Because I'm secure in Jesus. I'm not co so I'm out of this codependency thing or what Proverbs twenty nine twenty five calls the fear 
of man, the inordinate, inordinate reverence for the opinions of people. And so now you look at Jesus' words in Luke 9 when he says, if anyone comes after me, deny himself. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. That's what that looks like in real life. Because I'm secure in Jesus, and I know that what I am doing, even though it looks like losing and I look like a loser in the world's eyes, I'm absolutely secure in that. And if I'm absolutely secure in that and I'm running hard after Jesus, then what other people think is not how I gain my identity. And now I no longer have to play the game in my relationships. Free to enjoy and love people and the situations in which I find those people. Wouldn't that be a great way to live? And yet so many of us live in our relationships in all... You know, I've got daughters, teenage daughters. One of the words in my house is drama. Okay? <laughs> drama. But what's the drama about? Think about it. What's the drama usually about? It's what she said or who she talked to. She didn't sit at my lunch table. You know, I think she's mad at me. How do you know she's mad at me? She didn't talk to me. Well, okay. So this is guilt by silence, which is a capital offense pretty much in, in the world of teenage girls. But drama, and often drama, and what's the drama surround? It's this relational kinds of stuff. And my dependence upon the approval of these people and whether or not who, who's in favor this week and who's out of favor next week and who wore the cool stuff and who didn't wear the cool stuff and who's been acknowledged as being smart or athletic or whatever it is. And all of it depends on the views of other people, doesn't it? Every last piece of it. And if those kids could be freed, if our young people could be freed from the opinions of other people, my, how much, how much what more well-adjusted would they be? How much happier would they be? And those young people grow up to be old people like us who are still messed up, trying to conform to what other people want us to be. So when Jesus says that, that's what it looks like in relationships and in situations. Page 23, here's a second thing then to do to try to help people. One, emphasize the biblical teaching on self-image but also get them to look at their behavior <clears throat> and their actions specifically, not their personal worth generally. Now, what's meant by that? Well, we explain when someone laments, I'm such an awful person, ask what exactly he or she has done that leads him to think that way. Ask him to name his failures specifically. Now, why? Because if they name specific problems, you can give them specific solutions. Otherwise, they'll continue to feel generally lousy and helpless. But when we get them to name specific failures or sins, we can show them specifically what the Bible says about that problem. The desired result is repentance of wrong behavior. One, now hear this. One should feel guilty about sinful activity. And the only real solution to guilt feelings is confessing and forsaking the sin that gives rise to those. After that, one's relationship with God can get back on track. And so, let me pause there for a minute. This means that what we're trying to do is locate the problem that the person is having in the area that they are least comfortable. And that is inside themselves. 
See, when somebody talks to you or when you're talking to yourself about your problems, usually the problems are located outside of yourself. Usually the problems have a name, maybe a personal name. My problem is fill in the blank. Joe, Jane, my kids, my boss, whatever it is. Or it might have a name that's not a personal name. It's just the name of a situation. My problem is my job in general. Not anybody in particular. I just kind of hate my job. I hate... So fill it in. It's got some name, personal name or uh, some, some situation. But the Bible teaches that when we sin, it's not because of what somebody did outside of us. It's generated from inside of us. And therefore, we need to help the person look at themselves honestly and identify what it is that they have done, what it is they've said, what it is they've been thinking that's contrary to the character of God, otherwise known as sin, locating the problem in the place where it's least comfortable for them. We do everything we can to locate the problem outside of ourselves, but we can't help an individual until we help them see that the problem is actually inside of themselves. There may, in fact, maybe there are plenty of problems outside of us. There are plenty of problem people. There are plenty of problem situations. But the problem in how we deal with those and whether we sin or act righteously in those is an inside job. That's about us. And we've got help to help people see that. And that's why we then ask, what have you done? What have you said? What are you thinking that is giving you this, this guilt? And then in turn, that allows us to work on ourselves or to help them work on themselves rather than waiting for other people to get their act together. Do you see why so many people live like their whole lives in misery? Because the whole time they're waiting. The problem is blank. But what if blank never gets it together? Now what? I'm miserable the rest of my life. Joe never gets it together. And so instead now, instead of generally feeling lousy, generally feeling guilty, let's, let's focus on what's going on in you so that we can free you from those thoughts, those words, those actions. Repent of those and then move on. Notice the middle of the page where we have a quote from Jay Adams. Because Midge attributes her problems to a poor self-image, she feels helpless. When she comes to see that she deserves a poor self-image, by the way, if you've never read Jay Adams, this is vintage Jay Adams. <laughs> He's just really a straightforward guy. Okay? When she comes to see she deserves a poor self-image, <laughs> because of the poor self that she has become, she'll be on the right track. Now, don't read on, okay? Just for a second, but just think about that sentence. I mean, you would never find that from a secular psychologist ever, would you? You know, somebody says, I've got a poor self-image. Oh, well, let us tell you what a great person you are so that you have a high self-image. And, and Jay Adams says, well, you know, it may well be that Midge has done some things and has been a poor self. Therefore, her image ought to reflect the self that she has become. So help her to see that. And when she does that, she'll be on the right track. And here's why. Instead of passively sitting around waiting for others to satisfy her needs at lower levels so that she can become the sort of outgoing person she ought to be, she must be made aware of the fact that she can reach out to others now 
developing friendships out of serving others and showing love to them. As she begins to do so, the situation will change. Now, I would just modify that to say, you know, the other people may not change, but her perspective on the situation will radically change, and that in turn will change her. Scripture teaches that our self-evaluations are always to be based on observable evidence. Our objective is not a high self-image, not a low self-image, but an accurate self-image. Romans 12.3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So first, if we're going to help people, we emphasize the biblical teaching on self-image. Get them to see behavior specifically rather than just their worth generally. And then thirdly, help them deal with the past biblically. Some people with self-esteem problems have had to deal with much ridicule or abuse in the past. One of the most wonderful truths about Christianity is that we can be freed from the past. We're not stuck with what happened to us in our earlier years. First Peter 1 We'll be seeing this in a few weeks in our series in First Peter. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So how do we help people with issues from the past? What should they do if others have mistreated them? We have little or no control over how others treat us, especially when we're young. But we can control how we respond. Unfortunately, people often respond to sinful situations by sinning themselves. They might repay insult or injury in kind, doing to others what has been done to them. The result is often a bitter, hateful spirit. Such responses are unbiblical, rooted in the old sinful nature. People need to learn a new method of dealing with old injuries and insults. Let me just stop there for a moment. So you have, have read that and you've per- probably witnessed that. I certainly have. Where the cycle continues from one generation to another. And it kind of amazes us. We just kind of scratch our head. That people who have been harmed seek to harm. But it happens over and over again. And it is this dynamic that, that we have listed, listed here. But that's where, top of the page we can step in and provide some hope. Believers have the power of God activated in their lives, enabling them to respond biblically. We don't have to repay others for the wrong they do to us. When people start applying biblical principles, forgiving as Christ forgave, the issues from the past have less influence on the present. Now notice, less influence. And the word influence is a good one. The truth is we are all influenced by our past, all of us. And if you have had very traumatic things go on in your past, then that is going to be an an influence, a major influence in your life. So we are influenced. Our past has influence, but our past, and here's what Christianity teaches, our past is not determinative. Our past does not determine our future. And yet, many people feel hopeless because I am trapped in this thing because this stuff happened to me. It is with me all the time, and it has determined the course of my future. Influence, yes. Determination, absolutely not. We can be freed from the past. Now, how? I mean, that's the theory. But how would you help somebody like that? Here's what I recommend. Here's here's what I do. 
um, I asked them to explore with me what they believe. I want to I focus on what they believe to be true about a number of people. And I'll give those categories in just a second. But where I want to focus is, you've had these things happen to you. I want to know, what have you come to believe about a number of people? And when I say I want to help them with that, I just want to pause long enough to say to you all, to us all, we may be talking about you here. So I don't know everybody in this room, and even those I know, I don't know everything that's going on with you. But you maybe have, have something that is hounding you from the past that has influenced you. And because it hasn't been handled, it's determining the course of your life. And what I'm saying is, yes, it's an influence, but no, it should not determine the course of your life. And how do you break that? Help the person or help yourself step through what it is you believe. What do you believe about? First, God. What do you believe about God? So you've gone through the experiences you've gone through, whatever they are. They may have been uh, very traumatic, may have been been horrible. You carry that influence with you. But ask yourself at this point in time on May 12, 2013, what do I believe about God? Now, specifically, do you believe that God can handle the situation and the people, if there are other people, involved in the situation? Do you believe that? Many people, Christian people, don't. They don't believe that. How do I know they don't? Because they are obsessed with trying to do themselves what God has said only He can do. This is why Romans 12 says, Do not seek vengeance, my friends. Vengeance is whose? Says the Lord. I will repay. So this becomes a, what do I believe about God? Do I believe God can do that? Do I believe God can handle the person or persons? Do I believe God can handle the situation, whatever it is? And if I'm resorting to those things that God says belong to me, then I have said by my actions, I don't believe that. And, and if someone is a Christian, I have found that when you put those kinds of statements very directly in their mouths, you make them say that. So you don't believe God can handle that? You don't believe God can handle that person? A believer is hesitant to actually say that. They just live it. But I try to force them to say it. And they won't. And I'm glad they won't because I don't want them to believe that. So, can, what do you believe about God? Specifically, can God handle the person and the situation? As well, is God good? What do you believe about God? Is God good? Now, if somebody's had horrible things happen, they may have a very hard time believing the truth that God is good. So, what, are you gonna, what would you do? Christian counselor, and you are a Christian counselor, 
as you try to help your brothers and sisters. I don't mean with a lab coat and somebody on a couch. You're just trying to give people the truth of Scripture. What do you tell them? Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Romans 15, 14. I, who wrote it, Paul, he says, I, Paul, am convinced that you brothers are full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to counsel one another. That's what it says. So, somebody's had this horrible thing, a friend of yours, professing Christian person, you're saying, okay, hey, let's go through, what do we believe about God? And do you believe God is good? Well, all this stuff happened to me. What would you point that person to? Listen, only Christianity, only Christianity can, in the midst of horrible junk in a fallen world that we can't explain, and you certainly can't explain, nor should you spend a breath trying to explain why a particular thing happened to a particular person. You don't know. It could just as easily have happened to you or me. So don't waste your time with that. You can't do that. You don't know. But only Christianity can say, even though I don't know why that thing happened to you and it could have just as easily happened to me, I still know God is good. How? Not just in theory. In fact, because he came here. Only Christianity can say this. He came here and he went through all that. He went through all of the junk. He was tried in all points like we are. And who is he? He is God. So in the midst of questioning the goodness of God, which will naturally come from the person who goes through victimization. I've been victimized. And, you know, sometimes we preacher types say, you know, everybody's a victim. Quit whining about being a victim. And that's, in our, in our culture, there's too much victimization, playing the victim. We know that. But there are plenty of people who, forgive the grammar, they ain't playing the victim. They are. They've been victimized at the hands of someone who was supposed to love them and protect them. And in the midst of that, they wonder, is God good? And you're asking them, do you believe God is good? But you have, in Christianity, you have the, the, only, the only religion anywhere that has God himself coming into this fallen world and experiencing all of the fallenness of this world and doing so on whose behalf? On ours. And so you will do the work of walking through with your friend, rehearsing the truth of the fact that God is most definitely good, and we see that in Jesus. And then ask yourself, what do you believe about God? Can he handle it? Is he good? Another question. Will God fulfill his promises in your life? Do you believe that? Will God fulfill his promises in your life? that he will not, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.13, there is no trial that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And with the trial, God is faithful. He will provide, what, a way of? Now, God says that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will hold your hand through this thing? And that God will see you through this thing. He promises to do that, but this gets to, do you believe that about God? I'm going to go on. But, dear friends, you see the stuff I bark about every Sunday? And we try to say this is who God is. 
it matters. It's my hope and my prayer that you pick up a vision of God and who God is so that when you are confronted with your problems, now, in the future, when you're seeking to help someone else, you bring what you know and believe about God to bear in your own life and in the lives of others. Can God handle? Is God good? Will He fulfill? So what do you believe about God? What do you believe about other people? That's another category. What do you believe about others? And maybe these others have a specific name. It's the other person who did whatever they did. Or just people in general. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, the Bible has plenty to say about others, about us, right? So, you think about, right now, think about the category of person you have in your mind that you say, I don't know how anybody could do that. But you've got one, or two, or a hundred. I don't know how anybody could do X. But, do, but biblically, do you know how anybody could do those things? So what does the Bible say that comes from? <clears throat> comes from our sin nature, right? How many people have that? Everybody. But here is something that's been helpful to me. You know, it may or may not be helpful to you. Because it doesn't seem to do justice to the way we need to think about victimization, very heinous things that are done. To say, well, everybody's a sinner. And the Bible doesn't just leave it at that either. I mean, have you ever noticed that the Bible does? We say, well, sin is sin. That's true. But the Bible does seem to sing, well, not seem to, the Bible does single out some stuff. So how do you harmonize that? I mean, we're all sinners. We all got the same disease. And yet this person is more sick spiritually than, than I am. How do I process that? Here's the distinction. There's a distinction to be made between depravity, which everybody has, and corruption, which is at various levels and degrees. There's depravity and there's corruption. And there are, there are the, the person who does the unspeakable and the unthinkable is a person who has experienced a level of corruption that you haven't gotten to that most other people haven't gotten to, that most other people will never get to. So how do, how do you look at that? You, you look at that and you, and you say, how did that person become that corrupt? They had the seed of depravity, the same seed you have, but they became extremely corrupt, unspeakably corrupt. How so? Well, you look at the backgrounds of people who do this stuff and you see the kinds of things in most of them, almost all of them, that have gone on in their lives and that they've responded wrongly to. They didn't take this class. They, didn't, they don't have the gospel. They don't go rehearse and what do I believe about God? What I, and they repeat the cycles and all of that stuff. And you then need to ask yourself, what if all of those exact same things happened to me? Where would I be? You're not as corrupt as that guy. 
And it's okay to say that. That's just a fact. You're not as corrupt as. And you're not as corrupt, most people in here, probably everybody in here, is not as corrupt as the people we read about in the newspapers. But you could be. You're not, but you could be. And that's what the Bible teaches. I could be. And why aren't I more corrupt than I am? Well, you've heard the phrase, but do you really believe the phrase? But for what? The grace of God. So what do you believe about God? And what do you believe about other people? In other people, we can see the extent to which depravity can go in the corruption that is evident in the lives of folks who God's hand of grace, grace by definition is not deserved, so God can just let people go to where their depravity will take them. If he did that with you, if he did that with me, I, I don't know where I'd be. I can tell you this, I wouldn't be standing here as a minister of the gospel. I'll tell you that. I know that. I don't know where I'd be. I grew up in the same home as three brothers who've been in and out of jail, substance abuse. How do you explain that? And I can tell you, it ain't me. But for the grace of God. So what do you believe about God? What do you believe about others? And then ask yourself, what do you believe about yourself? So what do you believe about yourself? And you may find that this person who has been victimized may think, this is not uncommon at all, I did some things to deserve this. What was done to me? You will want to counsel the person. If they are victimized, then place them as the victim. And place the person who did it as the perpetrator. And don't mince words about that. You have been wronged. And you did not do something to deserve this. How do I know that scripturally? Uh, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. You know, the apostles, um, or, and, uh, the, yeah, the apostles come to Jesus and they had adopted a, a retribution kind of theology that God is retributing people for things that they've done. You did this, you're going to get this. When something bad happens, it's retribution for something you did. And so they thought that. So in John 9, they bring a guy who was born blind. And do you remember their question? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Something bad happens. All we need to know is who did it. We know somebody did it, they say. That's their retribution theology. And do you remember Jesus' answer? Neither this man nor his parents. So as you ask the person, what do you think about yourself? You may find that they think about themselves, I deserve this, I did something to deserve this. And the scriptures have great comfort with regard to that. That we often get hit by the shrapnel of the war that is going on in a fallen world. And it's not because of a one-to-one, -one, I did this, therefore that happened. Now, there are times where it is very obvious that what I did resulted in what happened. If I go out and get drunk, and I get in my car, and I drive, and I injure someone, then there's a one-to-one -one there, isn't there? I did this, it resulted in that. 
But when someone is victimized, I mean, well, the person who got hit, <laughs> they're just going out for a walk, perhaps, or going out for a drive. What did they do to deserve that? And the Bible would say they did nothing to deserve that in particular. There's not a one-to-one correspondence with us. And so what do you think about yourself? In asking them what they think about others and the depravity and corruption, you've already focused in on the fact that we, like they, are sinners but have not experienced the same level of corruption. Now what do you see of yourself in the situation that you are in? And in all of this, the promises of God have direct applicability. All right, it is noon and I have to finish. But take a look at the last item then. Demonstrate the fulfillment found in pleasing God and in others-oriented living. And the last paragraph there says, Satisfaction is a result of fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. The Bible teaches us that man's purpose is to glorify and honor God and to enjoy one's relationship with Him. When one fulfills that purpose by living a godly, obedient life, abundant life is the result. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So what we're saying there is that's a way you can help other people. You help other people by demonstrating the reality of this is really true. (laughs) That if you really believe this about God and believe this about yourself and believe this about Christ and what He has done for us and that losing my life I gain it, that in glorifying God... uh, I am most satisfied and find my deepest satisfactions met. And it has the result of me living this abundant life that you see at work and in the neighborhood and at the family dinners and all of that. We're going to finish honest, but in our series in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you of the hope that you have within you. Now you just think about this. Why would anybody ask us about the hope we have? There's got to be something there. (laughs) Again, forgive the grammar, but if there ain't nothing there, ain't nobody asking. And what this is saying is, if you appropriate these truths, there will be something there in your life that people will see, and they will say, tell me about that. I want some of that stuff. So, do your good deeds says Peter as well, so that the the pagans, the unsaved, the unbelieving will see them and glorify your Father in heaven. That's how we help people, okay? And that's how we help ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the applicability of the enduring, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. We thank you that it teaches us about the giver of life. It teaches us about life itself. And Lord, uh, you, and it teaches us about practical everyday life. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us here to fend for ourselves in this fallen world, but you've given us light and life in the pages of Scripture. I thank you that we've been able to have this time in this series to think about how we should view ourselves based upon the truth of what you say about us, and what you have done in and through us. Help us to appropriate that in our own lives so that it looks different, so that it makes a difference, so that people would be motivated and prompted to say, tell me about that. 
Lord, I pray that this in turn will equip us as well to be your servants in the lives of other people. There are hurting people all around us. There are hurting people living in this subdivision and all around that you have equipped us to help. We pray for those unnamed people right now that you are going to allow us to reach in the months and years ahead. I pray that this week, this next month, you will allow circumstances such that our brothers and sisters here will be able to put into practice the things that we have discussed these last six weeks. Go with us, Lord, we ask. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Amen.